time together. I thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit even now moving upon all of us that are going to be hearing this or watching this to help us be good soil. And that everything spoken through me needs to be said as living seeds of truth sown into good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit, take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. I thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit um, blowing this seed out among the nations. It will get where it's supposed to accomplish what it's supposed to. The Bible says it will not return void, but it will go forth and accomplish what you sent it to do. So we thank you for it. We stand on that. We submit it unto you. We resist the devil. We bind anything right now that would try to hinder. We commit to go in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you for hearing and answer our prayers over your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is not any type of a new concept with River of Life. But, you know, sometimes I get sermons all the time. I'm a pastor. And God uses, has used us sometimes to travel and minister. But I feel the call on my life, primarily pastoring being the main part of it. But God has used us at times in an evangelistic role of soul winning and obviously teaching. He's used us in and out of different uh, giftings, etc. But I feel as a pastor that this is what I'm sharing tonight is not just a sermon and it's not just to feed you. This is more than that. This is something that I feel is on God's heart that we need to pray through. Okay, everybody catch that. That's maybe the most important thing tonight that I just said. I don't feel this is just a sermon for you to learn information. I feel this is the word of the Lord to us saying, I need you to pray about this. This is something that's on my heart. I want you to pray this through. So with that said, we know that these scriptures here, but before I get into these scriptures, think back in the word for just a moment. When God, when the Bible talks about sending Jesus, who was slain from the foundations of the world, um, what was God's heart in sending his son to die on the cross? What, what was God's heart? It was to restore mankind's relationship back to him. So everybody catch restoration there. Everybody catch that. And the Apostle Paul talked about having a ministry of reconciliation, but that has to do with also rest. The word could be also restoration, okay? And it's interesting when you look at, I'm glad Stephen said this to me today because it really rang in my spirit about this, but you know how God had to judge Israel because of sin and sent them into Babylonian captivity. But God's heart in that, even at the very beginning through Jeremiah, was you're only going to be there 70 years, and then I'm going to bring you back. And what? Restore. Did everybody catch the word restoration there? To restore. The temple had been torn down, but God was going to restore the temple through Ezra. And the, the wall around Jerusalem had been torn down, but God was going to restore that through Nehemiah. And I could say much more, but I think you get the idea. And God sent prophets in among them, like Zechariah and others, to encourage, because it was difficult. The process of restoration, the warfare that they faced in that time was horrendous. And the devil used some evil people, Samballat, Tobiah, Tobias, they were, uh, they were evil people that were resisting, trying to cause problems. So anyway, God's heart is a heart of restoration. Now, I'm just sharing this as more of a word of the Lord for us, that if we will pray, 
and believe. Now, what did, what did Pastor Paul just tell us? I read it, and I sent that out to some intercessors. He said that your prayers is what unlocks the heavens or whatever, but it's your faith that makes things happen. So we pray, but we have to believe. All right. So 2 Chronicles 7, 13 through 14, we all know this scripture. But it says that if I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, now how many feel that we've, we've slipped into a time when it seems like over America the enemy's trying to brass the heavens and that there's a lack of a real outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Now, understand that I, when I say these things, I'm saying these things with love and a, in, in the right spirit, but a lot of times people are saying the word revival, but they really, they're not seeing a real revival, and I'm not sure that they know what that means. I think that they think that means everybody's just getting excited about something and a lot of people are coming. They don't know what real, when real revival comes, God steps down from heaven. The Holy Spirit begins to move. And I mean, you better just get out of the way and just move with God because he's, he's come to take over. He hasn't come to bless your little thing. He's come to knock your thing out of the way and take over, Okay. Real revival is not what a lot of people think it is. So he said here, if I shut up the heavens so there's no rain and I command the locusts to devour the land, I want you to remember that phrase, the locusts devouring the land. Or if I send a pestilence among my people, look at this, and my people, who? My people. Everybody say my people. This is not the job of the heathen. This is the job of us, okay? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves. Number one, humble and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. So this is our job, isn't it? God doesn't expect the heathen to pray and seek him. And let me tell you something else. The, the more humble that we are, the more we're going to be praying because we know that we depend on him. But the more proud we become, the less we're praying because we think, oh, we got this. Like I was saying before the recording came on, if you ever get to a place in the ministry where you think you got this, you're in a lot worse trouble than you could ever imagine. When we stop depending on him and we start thinking that we've got it, that's when everything is going to go sideways. We've got to depend on the Lord. And so he said here, if we will humble ourselves and really pray, and what has concerned me, and I'm getting ahead of myself, is, is that I've seen a generation of powerful intercessors, people that knew how to get in the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, they knew how to pray in tongues. They knew how to get under a burden and a weight of that Holy Spirit's uh, burden for something, and they knew how to travail until that lifted off them. They knew how to move into the realm of groans too deep for words. They knew how to pray powerfully. And that generation, by and large, is dying off. And I'm definitely not seeing uh, a bunch of that going on today and not only am I saying that, but every single person that has come through here to minister and connected with us has told me that. Said, I traveled the nation, and I'm not seeing this anymore, anywhere. 
that's concerning. That should be one of the most concerning things for us is that the generation that knew how to really pray the type of prayers that birth revival, that generation, those intercessors are dying off and we're not seeing them being replenished. Now let me tell you something. I'm gonna, this sermon is all about restoration. God is the God of restoration. That means in a 24-hour period, he could fall upon a 1,000 intercessors tomorrow and he could raise them up. But we need to start praying about this. I'm hoping that this will be kind of an alarming thing. This is concerning to me. And I heard Perry Stone just recently, I mean, this year, say this. He said, you know, he said in the 90s, there were around 30 of us that were, that were prophecy preachers. And he said, we would come together on TBN, and, and he said, we, we were all prophecy preachers, and we didn't necessarily agree about every teeny little thing, but but we all had a lot of common ground, and we knew the word, and we were preaching the depth of the word. He said, out of about 30 of us, he said, there's three of us left. Three. Is everybody? And so it's concerning to me because we're not seeing that depth. A lot of the sermons, there's still some wonderful preaching out there, but a, a lot of things have gotten more shallow, and that depth is not there. And I think a lot of Christendom right now is a part of movements that, boy, I'm trying to say this the right way, a part of movements that are about what people want the way they want it. And it's not about sacrificing. It's not about the death of the flesh. It's not about really going deep into the meat of the word. It's not about fasting. It's not about powerful prayer. It's more about just give people what they want that almost appeals just to their flesh and, and their emotions. And so that depth, and I think a lot of Christendom right now, I don't think you guys would argue with this. I think that they just want Christianity on their terms, and they just want a little scripture in a meme on Facebook, and that's about the extent of their Bible study. Hello? And so we're in a time... I, I can't believe it. I still have a hard time really wrapping my mind around this because I lived through the 90s revivals. I was right in the middle of it. And I thought we were all going to go deeper. And I could not believe how quickly the tide turned. About 2005, I would say, is when the revival of the 90s really started waning. And then there was an emerging of something else that came, and everybody started gravitating toward that. So um, anyway, it's just really, to me, it's really sad because I don't know how else to say this. I'm just hoping that by the grace of God, I can communicate some of this well. But I've been seeing like where we went last night, and there's other places that, that God used to move so powerfully. And I mean, revivals were taking place. There were healings and miracles, signs and wonders deliverance to the captives, the power of God, people baptizing the Holy Ghost, the place that people be under the power all through, the powerful services, powerful moves of God. And Satan is really trying to shut all that down. And now I'm seeing these places, and they're dilapidated, the numbers are small, and then I'm seeing where all the numbers are, and boy, is that concerning. So as Satan is trying to brass the heavens and trying to release his locust into the land, what are the locusts? The demons. 
that had been sent on assignment to devour and destroy. What do locusts eat up? Fruitfulness. So Joel chapters 1 and 2, I'm, I only have a couple scriptures here, but if you want to study this on your own and really look into this, underline and highlight and study this topic out, I, I could not encourage this more. This is a very powerful study. But if the people of God, if we will humble ourselves and pray and fast, and you're going to see this, there is a breakthrough. Now, in Joel chapters 1 and 2, and I'm going to condense this, but in Joel chapter 1, you see the desperation. Read Joel chapter 1 on your own this week. You'll see the desperation. The enemy had come in. We're talking about, when you talk about the locusts in Joel 1 and 2, you're dealing with actual military forces of like the Amorites, the, Mil- the Midianites, and the Amalekites, or somebody like that. But they were allowed to come in because God's people were not living right. And the Bible described them like an army of locusts coming in. And this army of locusts that came in and, and the Bible even uses a descriptive term like this worm that was devouring. I mean, it was, it was eating up all the fruit. And what was happening was, was because of this, these militaries coming in, all of the vineyards were being stripped. All of the crops were being destroyed or stolen. All of the trees, the fruitfulness was being taken. It, they were coming in like locusts and just devouring everything. And it was desperate. It produced a famine. And God's people were desperate. And and listen to what Joel, Joel was trying to tell them, your problem is, is things are not really right with you and the Lord. And listen to what he said here. Yet even now, Joel 2.12, again, this is very condensed. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your hearts. With, look at this, fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments. In other words, God is not interested in these outward displays. He's saying, I'm looking at your heart here. Rend your heart. And he said, now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. He said, blow the trumpet, the shofar in Zion. And look at this, consecrate a fast. Proclaim a solemn assembly. So the Lord was saying through Joel, if all of you will gather together and you will consecrate unto me a period of fasting and praying before me. And he said, let the priest and the common people, let the husbands and the wives, let the old and the children, let everybody come together and consecrate a fast. Listen to what he said in verse 20. I will remove the northern army far from you, and I will drive it into parched and desolate land. It reminds me of the scripture when Jesus said this. He said, when demons leave, what happens? They go through dry places. And what the Lord is saying here, this is an actual literal thing that Israel was facing, but it has a spiritual application. The Lord is saying when the body of Christ, by and large, has become carnal and worldly, and just self-seeking, and the power of God is done away with, and there's sin in the camp like there is today, and the heavens become brass, 
There's no rain like there should be, and the locusts, the demonic forces, have been released, and the fruitfulness is being devoured. The Lord is saying, call out to me. Humble yourselves in prayer and fasting and repentance. And he said, then I myself will drive out the forces of hell from you. And then he says this, and I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. We need a restoration. We're living in desperate times when we really do need a restoration. It's serious. In Isaiah 58, this is another uh, common passage about fasting. And in Isaiah 58, it takes it a little bit further when it not only talks about humbling oneself and prayer and fasting, but it says if you will put the sin away, quit with all the malicious talk and, and being oppressive and mean toward one another, put all the sin away. And then he said, if you will be a giver. There's something about giving, isn't there? I, I remember that during the revivals of the 90s, one of the places where God was moving was in at Brownsville and Pensacola. And of course, God really touched me there, among other places. And I remember Derek Prince went there, and he said the heavens were open. But one of the things he said that always stuck with me, he said that there was an element of the people there were a very high percentage of them were, were tithers. And he said, because of the tithing, he said, what's the promise that God said, I will open the heavens and I will pour out so much blessing. That's not just financial. That's also an open heaven and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And also in the life of Cornelius, the angel appeared to Cornelius and said that your prayers and your giving has gone up before God as a memorial offering sent for Peter. But well, what happened when Peter came? The Holy Spirit was poured out like on the day of Pentecost. Did everybody see the connection there? So Isaiah 58 says, uh, not just being praying and fasting, but also being givers. And there's something about that, and God showed me this. Let me just stop here for a moment. It's not in these notes, but there are seven realms of giving and God showed me this, and I, he laid it on my heart personally to begin to make sure that my life as an individual and my wife and I were really giving scripturally. And so one of them is the element of first fruits. So whether it's like the first of the month, the first of the year, your first, if you get a new job, your first paycheck, maybe there's some kind of a special offering, but it's like the first and if you give of the first, and the, this is all through the scriptures, including the New Testament, where Paul said, if the first fruits are holy, the rest is holy. There's something about when you give God a first fruits, the rest has a blessing come on it. Now, that's altogether different, though, than tithing. Tithing is the 10%. But if people are givers, if they're tithers, as I already quoted, the Bible says, I will rebuke the devourer. How many would say we need to devour a rebuke from our finances? And he said, I'll open the heavens and pour out more blessings and there's room to contain. Nations will rise to call you blessed. So there's something about tithing. That's the second. The third is in the realm of um, not gleaning the corners of your field. The Lord said to leave the corners of your field for the poor. And so in a practical sense, when you see people around that need help, that we're we're generous to help them out. And then there's an element there of a special uh, giving at what's called the Moedim. Uh, 
times like Passover and Pentecost and the fall feast, etc., like a special offering to the Lord at those times. I believe there is something to that that's very powerful. And then um, there's other elements of, of giving that I really don't have time to get into too much, but my wife and I began to do that. Another one would be regarding the poor. And Psalm, isn't it Psalm 41, is that right, where it talks about that? But it says, if you regard the poor, you'll be counted among the blessed of the land, not given over to the desires of your enemies. The Lord will be with you to deliver you out of trouble. He'll raise you up out of a sickbed. So there's powerful promises on, on giving to the poor. And then, of course, we know blessing Israel. Uh, anyway, those are areas of giving. And so my wife and I began to make sure that we were doing all of this. And we wanted to do it through River of Life so that, you know, it brought a blessing on the church. And as we started doing that, my wife will tell you that we started noticing in our personal life that our finances started really changing for the better. So there is something about being a giver. In Isaiah 58, if you mix in together, putting all these scriptures together, humbling ourselves, that's the main thing. God's looking for humility. But then if we're humble, we're praying. And another way to humble ourselves is through fasting. Fasting has to do with food, okay? But you can add other things if you want, but humbling ourselves, praying and fasting, and being givers that we're sowing financially. And then we can see in here deeply consecrating our lives unto God. And that means deep repentance, confession of sins. Let God show you things that need to be dealt with. And so as we combine those five things, five is the number of grace, and I don't believe that it's any accident that there's five different things that God says. There's a pattern. Humility, prayer, fasting, giving, and deeply repenting, deep consecration. He said, if you'll do those five things, look at the promises here in Isaiah 58, verse 8. He said, your light will break forth like the dawn, and your recovery, your healing, will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You know what that's a parallel to? In the book of Malachi, where it says, the son of righteousness will arise with healing in his wings among those that fear the Lord. So there, and if you read Malachi, healing in his wings, it's obviously his tallit, his prayer shawl, but it implies in the Hebrew like rays of healing light. So there's something here where if you do those things, the Bible says that that light of healing will break forth and healing will come. So there's a promise of healing. Why many times is healing so difficult to get a breakthrough? Because you're dealing with deep-seated issues, especially entrenched demons of infirmity and things like that that have been there that have attached themselves and they've been stubborn. They don't want to budge. And maybe they've had some kind of legal ground in the past that if you ask God, he'll show you. But as you deal with that in humility and prayer and fasting, giving, consecrating your life, and you'll stay with it, that's how those entrenched spirits of infirmity are dislodged. And healing will come. And then verse 9, that, that right there, if you read all this, you can't help but think to yourself, why in the world is the body of Christ not doing a lot more of this with all these promises? If you read these promises, you would think anybody in their right mind would want to be doing this. 
but they're not taught. So they don't know. In verse 9 says, then you will call and I will answer you. How many want to, if you were to ask me, how many feel this way? Pastor Scott, I want to know how can I have a really powerful prayer life, the type of prayer life that prayers really get answered? How many feel that way? I do. One of the ways you're going to see that is when you pray according to God's will. You know his will through the word of God, but you have to pray according to his will. But these, okay, so if you combine these, it says you'll call, the Lord said, I will answer. You will cry out, and the Lord will say, here I am. How can you have God's nearness? You know, the Bible says he's close to the humble, but he knows the proud from afar. See, there's something about what I'm discussing tonight that causes the nearness of the Lord in your life. Then it says, and you will, the Lord will continually guide you. How many want direction? You know, the Bible says if we ask for wisdom, the Lord will grant it liberally without finding fault, but you have to pray with faith. It says that. The, he said, don't be like the waves of the sea tossed back and forth with doubt. He said, if you ask the Lord for wisdom, you need to believe that he's given you wisdom. But see, this is this right here. He said, I will continually guide you. We need the Lord's guidance. We need to say in life, Lord, I need wisdom in this area. I need wisdom. Where do I go from here? What's the next step? Do I do this or not? Do I make this business deal? Do I take this job? Do I, you know, what are we doing over here in this area? Wisdom. But the Lord says, those that are humble in prayer and fasting, I will guide you. Then he said, I will satisfy your desire in scorched places. That streams in the desert. God can take you and put you in the middle of a desert, and you can still have waters flowing in your life spiritually. David Wilkerson said about Isaiah 58, and I'll never forget it. He said, it is the passage for those that want to live in perpetual revival. Isaiah 58. And then it says, and I will give strength to your bones. And you will be like a well-watered garden whose springs of water don't fail. You know what that is? An oasis, revival. You know what the picture there is? Like a tree planted by the waters who yield fruit in season, whose leaves don't wither. Whatever you do will prosper. Jeremiah 17, it talks about those that, that don't trust in the Lord. They trust in man. They will go into dry places. It's a curse. But he said, blessed are those that trust in the Lord. The Lord. They will be like a tree by the waters. So there's a blessing of those that are trusting in God, and they have their faith in the Lord. And there's a blessing there that you will live in a continual oasis. And God showed me this years ago, and I believe that that's why, by the grace and mercy of God, as we've been applying this and making River of Life a place of prayer, that's why there's continual waters here. You come in, and it's not difficult to pray. There's an open heaven. There's a glory. We can enter in. We feel refreshed and revived. Why? Because we've made God's house a house of prayer, like the Bible says. And let me just say this in great love. I realize that someone might say, well, you know, I'm not going to call a prayer meeting unless I hear from God about something specific, and I get that, I guess. But here's the thing. 
You know, in church, the Bible says about God's house, he says, my house will be called a house of prayer. And people have made it a house of everything but prayer. They always make room for children's church, and we need children's church, don't we? Kids need something. We always make room for the youth program, and we need something for teenagers. It is important. We always make room for this, that, and the other, but yet, where's the room made for prayer? And some say, well, I'm not going to do it unless this, that, and the other. Well, let me tell you, there's people in your congregation, you don't have to try to make everybody come. As a matter of fact, there's some people you probably don't want there anyway, But what you can do is say on this particular night, we're going to open the church, and if you're an intercessor, you're a prayer warrior, and you feel a burden to pray, we're going to have it open for these hours, and we're going to have worship going. We'll have the communion table out. Why don't you come and pray? We'll have some places set up that you can intercede over different things. They could make room for it if they want to. And I'll tell you what would happen if they did. They would notice the heavens would be more open they would notice the presence of God increasing. They would start seeing an increase of people getting right with God and souls being saved. They would start seeing an increase of healings and deliverances. But because of the lack of prayer, things have dried up. In verse 12, it says, and and I love this scripture, and those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. That's where I'm going with this tonight. And raise up age-old foundations called repairs of the breach and restores the streets to dwell in. And listen, not every harvest field is ripe at the same time. God has, there's an ebb and flow. A few years ago, about 10 years ago, we were in a different place and a different time and, and there were a lot of people getting saved that we were connected to a group and we were seeing a lot more. But right now, we're seeing some people saved here and there. But there's harvest fields have to ripen at different times. And I'll tell you what's been going on, River of Life. You intercessors, as you've been groaning and travailing over these last couple years, there's a harvest field that's being made ready. And when we get to the next place God has for us, that harvest field will be ripe and it will be reaped. All of that was birthed in prayer. It doesn't just happen. One of the common, without a doubt, the prerequisite for every revival historically has been prayer. And it's almost always, and I'm going through them with you so everybody here can say amen and you know it for yourself. But every, almost every single historic revival started with a handful of people in prayer. I mean, a small number. But they consecrated themselves. What were they doing? They were desperate. And they humbled themselves and pray and bring together some fasting, a group of people, and and they begin to consecrate their lives. And what happened? God poured out His Spirit. So areas of restoration, this is where I just wanted to kind of close out. And again, this isn't like a really long sermon tonight. I just wanted to bring this before you, that I believe God is wanting to restore on a bigger scale that I'm not really discussing tonight very much, but I want you to think about this. In America, we have a history that other nations don't have. Other nations' history is usually rooted in something altogether different than here. But in America, they don't even teach this in school anymore, but the historic fact is, is that there was a group of people that we know as the pilgrims, but they were actually 
refugees that were looking for a place that they could have religious freedom. But when they came on our Virginia beach, they planted a cross and they dedicated this nation for the furthering of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they saw themselves as missionaries to the natives here. This nation was so founded on Judeo-Biblical Christian values that even as they began to spread through the colonies, the, you know, the original Jamestown and beyond, and we are original 13 colonies, I mean, the school system itself began with prayer, and the Bible was the main book. That's just a historical fact. And it was a God-fearing nation. And we've had a long history here because of that, of every time that we've gotten wayward, God in his grace and mercy has remembered our founding fathers, and I'm talking about mainly the pilgrims, and those that have seen great revivals here, he's remembered the prayers of those that's gone before us, and God in his mercy has poured out his spirit. As we begin to move into becoming more secular, deism, humanism, God sent us a great awakening in the 1700s. Then after the Revolutionary War, things got difficult. We began to get wayward again. God sent the second great awakening, which we call Red River Cane Ridge. God continued the revival through Finney, but then the great revival I'm going to get into of the 1857-58 was a tremendous move of God that you probably don't know much about, but it shook this nation and other nations. Then God in his great mercy gave us a Sousa Street gave us the revivals of the 40s and 50s, gave us the great Jesus revival of the 60s that my mother was saved in that shook this nation. I mean, you go back and look it up for yourself. Time Magazine had it on their cover of what Jesus Christ was, what was happening in this nation. Major move of God. And then God sent us the 90s revivals. But I'm saying this, we've, we've gotten very wayward right now. But I'm gonna tell you, God isn't done. And he's got another major revival for America. But it's not just for America, and it's certainly not because we deserve it. But I believe it's for the world. The Lord said in the last days, I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh. And I believe God has a great outpouring. But heaven must receive Jesus until the restoration of all things. God's heart is restoration. And here's the things that I'm, I'm believing God for. There's ancient ruins that have been where the enemy has swept in and brought destruction. We need a restoration of the intercessors again. How many remember, I know that many here in River of Life didn't grow up Pentecostal. You know, Brother Ralph, when he was here, do you remember him talking about that as a kid? He would go to church and he'd get there early and there were people in the sanctuary go in there and he'd hear all those intercessors groaning and travailing and he said, man, I didn't know what to think about it, you know. That was common back then. I was mentioning this to Brother John Davis. I was like, man, I said, you remember years ago how common the intercessors? Oh, yeah. Every, everybody that grew up in Pentecost remember the powerful intercessors of days gone by. You remember at the Church of God. It's been a dying breed. You know why? Because they were so powerful. A lot of people think the pastor and this, that, and the other, okay, everybody has their place, okay? But I'm telling you, the powerhouse in churches is the intercessors. Hello? 
We need the Lord to restore back intercessors again. I was talking about that at Brother Chalmers Church, and the first thing Sally said was that special call, that special grace that God gives certain people to be intercessors. But sometimes I've seen several now through the years that God's hand was on them to be intercessors, but they just were so up and down and all over the place and just, we need, we need intercessors restored back that know how to pray things through and not get so distracted by life and satanic attack. We also need God to rebuild the altar of prayer again in the churches and make God's house a house of prayer. That concerns me. You know, I grew up in a Pentecostal church in Greenville area and, you know, it's been so many years now that the church has changed its name. None of the people that were there back then, they're probably there anymore. So basically, it's a totally different church than when I grew up in all together in every possible way, I'm sure. But I saw the pastor, my favorite pastor of that church, Brother Roberts. I saw him not too long ago because he came to a funeral of one of my relatives. And we were talking briefly, and I was thanking him for the years that back then and he was telling me, he said, you know, he said, I've been following you some on Facebook. I was like, the wonders of Facebook has connected all of us through the generations, you know. And he said, it's what he told me. He said, I love the emphasis you're putting on prayer. Because he knew, he was a man of prayer. You remember how they'd have the, the men's prayer thing in the morning? See, that's why that church had a move of God. And the, the pastors that knew prayer was important they would make room for it in their church. And there was a move of God, and that's where I was initially baptized in the Holy Ghost. It was at that church that we saw people come down and get saved. We heard messages in tongues and interpretation. I mean, the power of God was there, but it was because of prayer. We also, number two, we need a restoration of altar calls. What has happened? Uh, some of y'all old enough to remember where the Holy Spirit would move and people come down to get right with God? Is it, does anybody remember this? I mean, that even happened, God help us, that even happened in the Baptist church. What has happened now where it's just, you know, everybody, <laughs> we're just happy, happy all this. It's like, okay, let's be happy, but where's the fear of God, the conviction of the Holy Ghost to come back into the church where people are convicted and brought to repentance and drawn down to the altar to get things right with God. But we need a restoration of altar calls where people are truly getting right with God. There is a deep repentance of sin. I remember this, this old timer was talking to me and I'm trying to remember his name. He had been in the ministry. When I was talking to him, he had pastored for 50 years. And I remember that because I thought, man, that's a long time. And uh, I think he was in his 70s. And he was telling me, he said, years ago, he said, I, God has been using me. He was telling me this, using me to see people delivered of things. And he said, deliverance begins really with deep repentance. But he said, years ago, when people would come down and get saved in the altars, these Pentecostal churches, 
he said that they would stay in the altars and he said they would pray it through. How many remember praying through? Remember that phrase? Because I remember that growing up, praying it through. He said they would stay in the altars and they would deeply repent of all their sins. They were under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he said because of the deep repentance and the power of God in the altar, he said many of them were liberated from a lot of things. And he told me this. He said that, he said, I think that this younger generation has confused the anointing with other things. And he gave me an example. He said some of the modern worship is great, and I love modern worship, but he said that there's an energy and an excitement that's in the song and in the music. Did everybody catch what I just said? He said there's an energy and an excitement in the music itself, and people are mistaking that for the anointing. The wisdom of these men of God that's been around, and they know, they know the power of God, and they know when it's not the power of God. It's just hyped-up emotional stuff. But altar calls that people come down and really repent and they're getting their life right, and people are praying with them, and they're praying issues through. Consequently, they're living a holy life. I remember um, also times when God was really moving. We had gone to another country when I was uh, helping out Steve Hill's ministry and serving his ministry, and he had sent a small group of us to a, another country. And we were, when we were there... We had a ministry, and it, it was actually a pretty big crowd there because it was an annual thing that a lot of people came. Anyway, we had just felt led to do it this way, but we had a guy build us like a little coffin, and people were supposed to come down and repent and, and bring their sin down to the altar and leave it in the coffin, you know. And let me tell you, this was a, a church event, and it would surprise you some of the stuff that we found in that coffin. We were like, dear Lord, <laughs> these people were supposed to be here for Jesus, and they came from all over the nation to be here, and why did they bring this, you know, and that, and what about that right there, you know? So we ended up, we ended up lighting that thing on fire, man. We had some lighter fluid, and we burnt that garbage. Yeah, it was bad. And so the Holy Spirit really fell, though, but here's the thing. It was the neatest story. Let me tell you, because I, I feel, for some reason, I just feel this in my spirit. We were there, and um, a friend of mine got up, and there, there was kind of an entertainment-based thing before, which was fine, but it was, it was dead as a doornail. And so he gets up, and he's trying to lead worship, just him on his guitar. And it was dead. And the spiritual warfare was such that he had um, honeybees landing on his face. We concluded that the devil was in the honeybees, man, because we, those things were trying to attack us. And there was no reason. We weren't messing with them. And so finally, we joined hands and prayed. This is a true story. And somebody had a little cup of some um, Coke or something there. All these bees, all of them, got in the Coke and drowned. It was like the pigs in the, that went in the water. <laughs> and man, it, it's a true story. It really did happen. I know it sounds crazy. But they were messing with us. And he's sitting there with bees on his face, man. He's a trooper. He's trying to lead worship. And we were praying. We were like, dear Lord, you sent us here, and this is dead, man. We need help. And all of a sudden, this, this little girl, I still got a picture of her. 
in my office on a collage. She was probably 13, this little cute little girl. And she's there in the altar, and all of a sudden, she goes up to the platform, and she's crying. And uh, she says, I need to share something. And there's, a, there's thousands of people there. This was kind of like, okay, give the teenager a mic, you know. And she said, she said when, when you were singing, she said, I saw a vision. I saw this big pot up here, and all of a sudden, this fire started jumping out on everybody. And when she was sharing this, the Holy Spirit just began to fall. And it shifted the whole atmosphere. And, man, we started praying. Thousands of people started getting hit by the power. So God can turn the tide, but here was the message. I was persecuted for this message, but that makes me all the more excited that it happened. Because what does it say in the Bible? Rejoice when you're persecuted for my name's sake, for great is your reward in heaven. But I was really persecuted by a couple of religious Pharisees. But I got up and preached and they invited those of us working with Steve Hill, and anybody would know that we're going to preach a message of repentance. I mean, I, I was thinking to myself, you know, anyway, I could say a lot of things, but I'm just going to move on. So I preached this message of repentance and people coming down and getting right. That's what we're needing now. We're needing the conviction of the Holy Spirit to be so intense in churches that when the preacher is preaching against sin, the people that are living in sexual immorality are repenting. They're coming down and repenting or they're leaving, but they're not comfortable sitting there in their sin week in and week out in God's house with no repentance at all and totally justifying that lifestyle of immorality like there's nothing wrong. That, that's the condition of a lot of churches out there. We need the restoration of altar calls and deep repentance. The third thing we need restoration is the baptism in the Holy Ghost. Speaking in tongues and the gifts. And let me tell you, even among so-called Pentecostal churches that used to be Pentecostal, now there's, I remember there was a particular uh, church that in our area that had kind of gone more of a seeker-friendly route, but some people were going to the church and they were a church that was Pentecostal in their denomination. And so they were telling me where they go to church. And I was like, oh, okay, that's cool. You know, it's a spirit-filled church. And, and they were kind of looking at me and said, no. I said, yeah, I mean, it's a Pentecostal church, right? You're speaking in tongues. No. You know, they, they were, we never seen that, never heard that. That has never happened one time. And I was like, and there we are. So a lot of what used to be Pentecostal is no longer Pentecostal. Even, even the, the pastors aren't praying in the Spirit. Even their children are not baptized in the Holy Spirit. We need a restoration of the baptism in the Holy Ghost and with fire. You guys ever heard the story about Smith Wigglesworth getting baptized in the Holy Ghost? Wave at me if you've heard the story. Okay, some have not. He was a shy, uneducated plumber, and his wife got really touched and she was connected to the Salvation Army. And before you think you know what that is, back then, it was a Holy Ghost baptized in fire, powerful ministry. And she was a part of that. And her husband was just this shy, uneducated, couldn't read plumber. But he wanted to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. So he went to this meeting. 
they got by a stove, and he was telling those guys to pray with him. Long and short of it, he gets baptized in the Holy Ghost big time. Comes back, and now he's up there to share his testimony at the Salvation Army, and he gets up, and now there's a boldness. There's an anointing. He's speaking with faith and power, and his wife's mouth just drops open. She said, that is not the man that I married and that I've lived with all these years. That right there is a different man. Let me tell you something. The place when the, the early church, when they, they were being persecuted, it said Peter and John had to stand before the Sanhedrin. These were people that, that had great authority and power that could have basically had them severely flogged, maybe in prison, and they knew that they, they were instrumental in having Jesus crucified. And so this could be quite intimidating here. And they're standing before the Sanhedrin, two guys, and it says Peter filled with the Holy Ghost, spoke with boldness to them, and said, judge for yourself if it's right for us to obey you instead of God. And the, the Sanhedrin said they took notice that these men had been with Jesus. <laughs> they saw the boldness in the Holy Ghost. They still had them beaten, and they left out their rejoicing, and they gathered in a house, and they began to pray. And it says that as they gathered together to pray, they prayed something along these lines. Lord, you see the persecution against us, and we ask you, Lord, that you would stretch out your hand and heal the sick. But we ask you, Lord, to grant, grant us boldness that we can preach your word fearlessly and not be intimidated by them. And the Bible says that the place where they met was literally shaken like an earthquake, and they were filled with boldness. What would that be like tonight if this actual building shook and we were filled with boldness? See, the shaking of God, the power of God. I remember tongues. I remember the gifts at work. Of course, it's here. But I remember it in churches. There was one church I was at one time, and there was a message in tongues after the worship, and then the interpretation was there was a particular person there that needed to come down and get right with God. And I mean to tell you, there was a lot of people there, and all of a sudden this guy comes out of the balcony, and he's all kind of shaking and crying, goes down and gets saved. We need the gifts back in the church. I remember Steve Hill giving an altar call. I'll never forget it because my name is Scott. He, he was given an altar call, and all of a sudden, he stops. This is a word of knowledge. And he points out there, he says, there's a military man named Scott, and he says, you're tired of taking orders, but the Lord says, get down here right now. And that guy ran down and got saved, and his name was Scott, and Steve didn't know him from Adam. That was a word of knowledge. Last couple ones, we need a restoration of the deep consecration. There was a time when, when taking communion was not just a dead religious ritual. People were healed and delivered of things. There was a time when we anointed people with oil and prayed for the sick and they were healed. I mean, the power of God came in. Listen, the anointing with oil is powerful. Demons flee. Jesus sent out the 70. Read it for yourself in the book of Mark. They anointed him with oil, and people were delivered and healed. There's a power in it. There's a power in the communion table. I could tell more stories, but for the sake of time. And there's a power in water baptism. And it's sad because people have relegated to something that you do when you're a kid. There's no power. People take pictures. It's just a religious ritual. It's just a thing. But let me tell you, baptism should be powerful. And it's not some once-in-a-lifetime thing. I recently heard Perry Stone share that and administered to me as well. He was saying that 
he had been through so much trauma and, uh, and just abuse by others, and he was really going through a difficult time. And he was having to forgive people, and the Lord spoke to him. Now, this is a man of God's been saved for a long time. How many know who Perry is? He's been saved since he was a kid. He's probably in his 50s, 60s. And <clears throat> he was out there baptizing a bunch of young people. And the Lord told him, said, you need to get baptized. And so he steps out there and he says, I'm obeying the Lord. I'm going to get immersed. And he did. And he said, when he came up out, he said he felt like this roar of all that pain, like a roar. All that pain just came out of his chest and God healed him from it right there. See the power in that? A water immersion isn't some once in a lifetime dead religious ritual without meaning. It is powerful. If we would get back to what it's supposed to be, it would deliver people, and there would be healings in it, and people would, the, the power that things have had in their life would break off of them. So we need to get back to these things. Um, the healing ministry. I think about Kenneth Hagin's ministry. The preaching, the depth of the word. He was a prophet. He had the word of the Lord. When he prophesied, it was actually real. It actually happened. It came to pass. It was real. Signs and wonders followed. I think about Derek Prince's ministry. Powerful ministry. Teaching but deliverance. Look him up on YouTube. Look up some of the deliverance. There was one place, I think they're in Africa or something, I don't remember, but he begins to take authority and all of a sudden you hear all these people out there, just a roar of people being set free from stuff. I mean, it was Jesus has come to deliver the captives. And again, what I mentioned earlier in the sermon about Perry Stone saying that so many have died that, that we're preaching the meat of the word, we need a hunger again in sermons that are the meat of the word. People need to get off of the pacifier and the bottle, and they need to grow up into the meat of the word of God. But right now, there's, there's something in large areas that is just milk, and that's all it ever is. And nobody's growing up into the meat of the word. And I would say the last thing, I, the last two things is we need to pray. You remember what it said about Jesus, the high places would come down, the low places brought up, the crooked places made straight. You know what that is? Things that are high and lofty and arrogant, it's of man, it's of the world, it's maybe even sometimes demonic, but it's not God. That needs to come down. That which is lowly and humble and righteous and pure and book of Acts, it's real. That needs to come up. And the crooked places of sin and iniquity need to be dealt with. And then what does it say? The Lord will come in, you see. But we need God to step in, and we need him to send his angels. The angels of the Lord will bring breakthroughs, and they will help clear away what needs to be cleared away. And I feel like in these latter days, we need God to send his angels. So I simply want to close with this, that if we, as God's people, will humble ourselves and pray, and we will really fast, and we will ask the Lord, we'll be givers and we'll be those that really consecrate our lives unto him, hear what I'm about to tell you. God will restore in your personal life the years the locusts have eaten. He will restore in your family, in your generations, the ancient ruins 
where the devil came in and brought destruction in family bloodlines. God's interested in restoring that. He's very interested in the salvation of your family. And he's also wanting to come in such a way that the ancient ruins of your city and this nation will be restored. Satan is trying to do away with any trace of our Judeo-Christian heritage, but God. If God steps down in America, you'd be surprised how quick our Judeo-Christian heritage will be restored. And I mean, great revival sweep through here, and there's not a thing that all these that, that are trying to rewrite history, all these that are trying to do away with all of that, and replace it with some secular New Age thing, there's not a thing they're going to be able to do about it when God steps down. There'll be so many people saved and repenting. And I believe that God has something for us in River of Life. So, Lord, I thank you for this sermon. I thank you for getting this into us tonight, that we will be among those that pray and fast. And because of praying, we're going to see the ancient ruins be rebuilt. The foundational teachings that Satan has stolen, foundations will be restored. And Lord, the, the breach where the locusts have been coming in, the demonic forces have been able to get through the breach in the wall, that's going to be sealed up and the enemy is going to flee. And Lord, there's going to be streets to dwell in. That means revival. And Lord, we thank you for it now in Jesus' name. So shut down recordings and let me know when